A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Abraham Reisman, author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get hold of us on social media. Well, you can do it. Go ahead. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Marvelists. Individually, I'm on all social media platforms, at Peter Melnick. And Eddie, you are only on one social media platform. That is the IG, the Instagram, what the kids say nowadays as they make fun of skinny jeans and I get mad. Well, I'm just going to keep going because I see you moving your hand around, Eddie. You're trying to get ready for the segment. Waiting for my part here. Well, you're waiting for Godot. No, my <laughs> part. I didn't part in my hair. Part of my <laughs> appearance while we make renovations. Eddie's on Instagram at... Eddie, 9193. Also, you can... <laughs> that was fun to do, though, man. That was really fun. Yep. Anyway, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themarvelist or at slash... The Marvelous. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> He's really screwing me up already this time around. Thank you. You can also, like I said, on Patreon, support the show for as little as $3 a month to as much as whatever you want to choose. Eight. Well, eight is enough to quote Bob Newhart. That was Bob Newhart on the show, right? No, that wasn't. D- Dick New- Van Patten, I thought. They both remind me of like the same person, usually. Uh... But I digress. Anyway. If you do the $5 a month tier, you end up getting the fantastic voyage where every month we talk about the legendary 102 plus annuals and whatever comes in between run. Issues uh, plus annuals. Yes, and annuals and other issues. Did they have over 100 annuals? I don't think so. They did not, but it's still... Rewind. You'll hear it. Thank you. Anyway, you end up listening to Fantastic Voyage where we cover every issue of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic run of... The Fantastic Four. And like I said, anything that falls in between, like let's say the Fantastic Four appears in a random Spider-Man. We might actually be talking about uh, Amazing Fantasy number one. Or not Amazing Fantasy, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number one. Cool. So, yes. Because they were there. Yes, they were. Okay. Just like uh, Brian Williams was that one time. That's a really dated reference now. Okay. But I I digress. Anyway, like I said, help support the show on Patreon and also go to belowthecollar.com slash the marvelous or slash The Marvelous. (laughs) He said it, I said it, just sounds the same. We all said it. But go on there, support the show and buy a T shirt. Buy a T shirt, please, for the love of God, buy a T shirt. I just, you know, I want, you know, I like seeing the T-shirts. They look nice, and they got our new logo on there. That they some do. People, some people are upset at us about. It. I'll tell you that off mic later, Eddie. Oh. But it's our new logo, and it's also featuring my favorite five-star review. Where are you, Dad? Joke immune. Go on iTunes. Read the greatest five-star review where they somehow put us down and still gave us a five-star because they realized the iTunes algorithm and everything. So, <laughs> thanks to Podhead who trashed us, but still gave us five stars. Thumbs upping for the audience that can't see it. Anyway, Eddie, joining us on the other end of the tin can and string is author of the brand new Stan Lee biography, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, Abraham Reisman. Good evening. Oh, good 
evening to you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for joining us, and I see it's your first, so congratulations on your first uh, outing in the literary world, in this form at least. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've had little things here and there that were, you know, in the backs of things or compilations of things, but this is the first sort of solo outing, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it came out. And right off the bat, first off, congratulations on all of the success that the book has attained so far. This is a hot-button book. It is a hot book just in terms of the content, everything going on with it, and it is... I, I'm currently on my second go-through on the audiobook, and I really, really enjoyed it. So to be able to see the, all of the reaction this thing is getting, holy crap, congratulations. Yeah, it's it's been pretty wild. I mean, you know... I'm, I think I did a good job, but I think it has less to do with that than it has to do with the fact that this is kind of a story that has been, there, there's sort of pent-up demand for it, right? Like, here's this figure who's the singular figure of the American comic book industry and of Marvel, um, which is this unbelievably important and lucrative and dominant brand, for better or worse, in the world these days. And there just wasn't really... Um, uh, an investigation into all of the ins and outs of Stanley's life. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of debate and controversy that people have been having in corners of the Internet, but that hadn't really made it to the mainstream yet. Uh, and, you know, so I'm very lucky that I, I happen to be writing about a topic that I think is just sort of interesting to a lot of people and, you know, my job I saw it as being just not getting in the way of this inherently interesting life story, you know, just sort of let it, letting it be what it is and trying not to uh, embellish it too much, you know. And, you know, with my uh, first go through on the book, my impression is it's a warts and all kind of retelling of Stan's life. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect with, you know, in terms of portraying him in the light that, you know, he was always made out to be over the years through various media outlets. And I appreciate the realness of the story and what you tell us. And it's very much one of those, how do I say, very much a honest portrayal. And, you know, it, you're going to get that. It's not going to be all sunshine and roses considering the, you know, the subtitle of the book is The Rise and Fall, you know? Yeah, there's, it's a. It's interesting. You you mentioned the subheading of the of the book. Um, that's been something that has led to this inadvertent social experiment that I've found, which is, um, you know, in in ads online or, you know, postings about it before the book actually was released and anybody could could read it. Uh, and this still happens to a fair extent in some comment threads. Um, people will go, rise and fall. He never fell. How dare you? And what's interesting about that to me is, um, you know, the people who are saying that are coming from the perspective of being super fans of Stan, or at least big fans of his, and they're, they're defending him. And I get where that's coming from. But what's interesting about this particular kind of fandom is, even beyond my assertions that there's this decline in Stanley's life that starts, uh, you know, a number of decades before he passed away, even if you leave that aside, the last year and a half of Stan's life was very publicly hellish. Yeah. I mean, it was all over the tabloid, the, the, just the, the abuse that was going on and, and the theft and, and just, 
it, it was really a, a miserable scene. But the point was, it wasn't hard to find. That was being reported in mainstream outlets. And yet, you have people who are self-purported Stan fans who are just not aware of that. Or if they were aware, they discount it. And that's not me dissing them. That's me saying this is how powerful the image of Stan Lee is, is that even if you're not, even if I'm not making a moral condemnation of Stan, if I even acknowledge that his story was unhappy, um, people get very upset because there's this story they're attached to, which is the story of Stan Lee as publicly presented. And that story is inspirational and it's very uplifting. And Unfortunately, that's not how real life goes a lot of the time. And anyway, yes, uh, that was a long riff, but uh, I, I do think that the, the subheading has been this interesting litmus test, how, how people react to it. Well, it's okay, because a lot of times we're, we're kind of the home of long riffs, so no big deal. <laughs> okay, great. And, you know, the thing in regards to his, like, final few years, you know, back in uh, August of 2018, we had done an interview with Mark Ruffalo, and, like, we had briefly talked about Stan. Oh. And this was, like, a few months prior to Stan's passing, and... He had remarked, you know, he goes, like, Eddie, you can, you remember this. Yep. He was remarking that, yeah, there were a lot of people that were always around Stan, and it was very much like a kind of circus kind of thing when he would show yeah. up. And in the sense of all of the people that he was involved with who were, you know, from what I've heard over the years and also reading in your book, they were not good people, quite frankly. And that's my well, interpretation. Well, it's hard for me to make, like, moral pronouncements about a person, but what you can certainly say is, the cumulative effect of the, the desires and actions of the people in Stan's immediate inner circle in his final years was pretty negative. It's hard to say, okay, well, this person was the main abuser or this person was the main grifter or whatever. Um, and assigning you know, specific blame for specific incidents can sometimes be elusive as well, just because a lot of this was you know, shady and, you know, two people in a room and who knows what happened. But like I say in the book, even if it's hard to say exactly who, you know, was responsible for what, the consequences of that abuse were just apparent for anybody to see. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you saw those, you know, the strange iPhone videos that were released or, you know, um, just stories that came out of how, how, abused, uh, how, um, you know, d uh, depressed and downtrodden he was and how confused he was about life. Um, you know, all of these were consequences of this, this environment he was in that uh, in some ways was an environment he created by, by befriending people or employing people. But, you know, even if it's something that he had sort of facilitated, nobody deserves to go through that kind of miserable experience when they're, you know, 93, 94, 95. Um, it's just, it was it was really a, an awful scene, and it it's you know uh, unfortunately that's how life works out sometimes. But it's not it's not a very happy story at the end. And with a lot of the stuff that had gone on with Stan, especially during that time, he was very much the you know an example of someone that was heavily heavily exploited to the point where his name was basically you know a get rich quick scheme for a lot of these people, and. It's very, you know, it's very telling in terms of like licensing of his name and everything where it took them a long, long time. Like I'm a, I'm a big action figure collector. And mm. when they finally came to do the Marvel Legends Stan Lee figure, they had to have, I believe, uh, Pow was involved. And sure, they didn't want to do that. And it took them so long to do that. And again, it's just it's the exploitation of someone. Yeah, I mean, it's it. 
when it comes to the projects that came out of his his two post Marvel companies, you know, he never fully dissociated from Marvel. But you know, for for listeners who aren't aware, in about 1998, he stopped being a uh, full time active duty at Marvel, um, and over the years became really just sort of an occasional figurehead for them. Uh, but, um, you know, at those two post-Marvel companies, Stanley Media, and then for a longer period of time, Power Entertainment, I think it's important to keep in mind that Stan was not a complete absentee landlord. You know, this wasn't exactly like, you know, Krusty the Clown and the Simpsons just sort of <laughs> stamping his name on whatever and not paying attention to it. Yeah. By the accounts I've heard, Stan really did pay attention to what he was putting his name on, but that didn't mean that the people who were facilitating those projects had his best interests at heart or even the interest of getting the thing made at heart. Um, you know, there's, again, I, I want to be careful with my words because it's, it's a serious set of allegations, but there was a lot of fraud at um, Stanley Media. That's very well documented. And there are allegations of it at Power Entertainment. And, um, you know, the, the, or I should say of, of misconduct, just to be a little more general. Um, but, um, yeah, the people around him really saw him as an opportunity to make money. And, that again, that's not a crime in and of itself. People have their names and likenesses capitalized on all the time. But um, there are these questions that get raised of how much Stan was even aware of what was going on, or if he was aware of what was going on, you know, what... It, it, I'm sorry, I, it gets complicated. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm stumbling because I, I just want to make sure that I'm not claiming something that is not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I went, I went, I did a lot in the wording of the book to make sure I was being as, as specific as I could be and not, um, you know, uh, accuse something, accuse someone of something. But you, you are right that there were a lot of people who saw Stan's name and likeness and presence and imprimatur as um, uh, the key to making their companies work. Well, Abraham, for you, when did this project all start for you? And what, you know, other than saying, well, you know what, we're seeing the portrayal, there's been a couple at least or more biographies of Stan. What for you was the incentive to say, you know what, I, I want to I tell this story? And what I'm getting at, too, is, of course, how long ago did it start for you? And sure. how long did it take to, yeah, well, to get to this point? A, it's, it's an odd story in that I didn't actually seek this, this book or the article that it emerged from. Uh, in both cases, it was other people coming to me. Uh, the, I was writing uh, full-time at New York Magazine and its culture site, Vulture.com, um, in 2015, when uh, an editor from New York Magazine, a guy named David Wallace-Wells, walked up to my desk um, put a galley copy, an advanced copy of Stan's 2015 memoir, a graphic memoir, um, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, onto my desk, and he said, you should do something with this. And I'd been reporting on the comic book industry for a few years at, at New York Mag and Vulture, so I saw this as like a great opportunity, right? And I started doing research and getting in touch with people, et cetera, et cetera. And about a weekend, I went to David and I said, uh, okay, well, here's what I got. And I got maybe 30 seconds into my spiel when uh, David stops me and says, oh, I meant you should write a short review. Like, he, he had not assigned this project to me that I was embarking on. But to his credit, he uh, then said, it sounds like you have some interesting stuff, so keep chasing this, see what you can find. 
So I wrote this profile that was released then in February of 2016. Um, and, you know, that, that took a few months. Uh, and then, you know, after it was out, uh, it did pretty well, but I, I moved on with my career and it, it didn't revisit Stan for a number of years. But then in November of 2018, when he passed away, uh, an editor at Penguin Random House, their crown imprint, reached out to my agent about me expanding the research I'd done for that article uh, in 2016 into a full biography. Um, and, you know, so I didn't exactly pitch it in either case. But the reason I found the project interesting and went forward with it in both cases was, um, you know, I, I think the story of Marvel Comics and the story of Stan Lee are two things that are of enormous consequence in global popular culture and business and um, just the way we perceive our lives these days because Marvel is so dominant. And, uh, you know, I don't have to tell you guys that. That's the name of... <laughs> of your podcast. And, you know, it's not that there hadn't been any work done on figuring out what Stan's life and career were really like, um, but no one had really, in a, in a really mainstream outlet and, uh, or mainstream publisher setting, um, tried to do a full deep dive into him and the controversies surrounding him. Uh, and it just seemed like from a journalistic perspective, that's that's your job. Is you're supposed to take stuff that is important to talk about and not otherwise being discussed at length or in in the the main public eye, and then try to investigate those stories and then tell them in a truthful way. And um, you know, it was kind of handed to me not just in terms of other people coming to me, but also in terms of the fact that a lot of the core stuff people within hardcore comic circles um, have been aware of and discussing for a long time. So I was able to stand on the shoulders of giants, of people who had thought about this stuff since before I was born. Um, but, you know, because it hadn't been presented to uh, a wide, huge public yet, that meant, you know, I could build on that stuff and also benefit from the fact that it had already been, the experiments had already been run. You know, th there were, there was, pretty much proof that there was more to the Stan Lee story than people thought, and a lot of that had been dug up. And then I, I, of course, dug up more, but I knew that the core aspects of at least the discussion of his Marvel work were sound. Like, there was, there was real meat there. That was not me making something up. And therefore, that makes it an especially appealing journalistic project, because you know you can at least have that rock to stand on and say, you know, this is this is something worth talking about, and I'm not alone in thinking that. And then beyond that, it was finding out the other aspects of the story that hadn't been discussed before and trying to put them into a coherent narrative. Well, Abraham, I did get to, as you mentioned, uh, standing on hefty shoulders. When I got the book just a day before, we're talking about this now, uh, started with the back, with the acknowledgments and, of course, the, the intro stuff. And I see that, for example, you do credit people like Sean Howe, um, after mm, you read yeah. Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, um, were you, and uh, is that part of the overall picture of how you decided, got to do this? You have a sure. comic book well, background? Mar well, How's Marvel your... Comics, Sean Howe's book, uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, is one of the main reasons I started writing about the comic book industry. I mean, I love that book. It's, and it, it, its success in the marketplace, in addition to just it being a really good book, um, allowed 
for uh, some degree of, well, I think he, he set a precedent, is what I'm trying to say. You know, he wrote very seriously and at length for a mainstream publisher about Marvel Comics, and that was pretty much, that, that was not really done in a serious journalistic or historical way pretty much ever. Um, and he, you know, laid that path, uh, blazed that trail, whatever, and sort of proved to people that you can do it and people will be interested in it. So, um, and that's on top of just the, you know, a lot of the really interesting research he did that was, was extremely useful for my, my, my own research and writing. Um, you know, and, uh, but I would also be remiss if I didn't mention another tremendous book, the, uh, the first serious biography of Stan, um, which was uh, Stan Lee and the Rise and Fall of the American Comic Book, which uh, was written by uh, Jordan Raphael and the late Tom Spurgeon, who was, you know, probably the greatest comics journalist of at least his generation, if not all time. Um, you know, but that book was published in 2004. A lot happened to Stan after 2004, mm-hmm. and it was short, and it kind of came out in a time when there was less. Uh, you know, 2004 is a different time because Marvel has not blown up to quite the degree it has now, so there were fewer eyeballs on it. But that was that that was a book that was enormously influential as well. And you know, I could keep going, but um, there there were a lot of existing secondary texts that were extremely important in my my work, and I, I will be forever thankful that they existed. And and also on a side note. And maybe to get a little bit bigger picture of, of yourself in general, what would you say is your uh, comic history, your introduction to comic books as a younger person and stuff? Sure, yeah. Um, well, it's a little circuitous. Um, I have vague memories of, like, having copies of DC comics that I'd, like, picked up at the grocery store when I was young, but nothing really stands out. I was not really that into them. It was just sort of a random purchase. And then when I got a little older... I got into, uh, in grade school, I got into uh, licensed comics about Star Wars and the, the Aliens franchise that uh, Dark Horse was putting out. Um, but then the real turning point came in sixth grade when um, my best friend told me that I should start reading Marvel comics. Now, I was familiar with Marvel from other media. I had, uh, you know, I had uh, been watching the Marvel cartoons of the early 90s, the Spider-Man cartoon, the X-Men cartoon, and the Marvel Action Hour. Um, and, you know, Marvel Action Hour is where I was first introduced to Stan because he used to do these, you know, live-action introductions. Um, but I didn't start reading the comics until, you know, I was almost done with grade school, and then I just became an addict. You know, we, I, I picked up an, a copy of, you know, X-Men Volume 2, number 69, which uh, was the end of a crossover. So although I knew who some of the characters were because of the cartoons, um, a lot of them I didn't know who they were, and more importantly, the story just bewildered me because I had not been reading the whole crossover, let alone, um, you know, all of the the millions, of, hundreds and hundreds of comics that had come before that. Um, so, you know, in that moment, it's a fork in the path for a young reader. Either you're the kind of person who goes, this is bewildering, and I don't have time in my life to try and sort through everything that I'm not understanding here. I'm going to go outside and have friends. Or you're the kind of person like me who goes, I don't understand what's going on here, and I must know. And now I have to learn everything about this so I can find out exactly what the code is. And, 
you know, that's, that's, a, that's a technique of storytelling, this sort of interconnected, iterative process that Stan was really the pioneer of. Um, you know, he was, you can debate uh, which, his degree of involvement in the creation of the Marvel characters, certainly, there's a lot to be doubtful about there. Um, but when it comes to the creation of the idea of this interconnected continuity universe, that's really, by all accounts, just Stan. Stan was the person who came up with that, and that's uh, an extremely lucrative, but also, from a storytelling standpoint, very interesting uh, development in the history of really storytelling, period, especially corporate storytelling. So I was the kind of kid who had the response that Stan was looking for, which was I wanted to know more, so I bought more comics. And then, you know, through my teen year, my, my, you know, junior high, high school years, I was a huge comics reader, just reading a, a whole boatload of them. Mm. And then kind of fell off a little bit in college and after college, and then reemerged in that world uh, when I read Grant Morrison's book, Super Gods, which is a very strange book, uh, but very exciting. I'm and currently going makes, through it myself. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it, it makes a good case for comics being interesting and worth your time, especially superhero comics. So uh, that kind of got me back on the path. And then a little while after that, I started writing about comics. Um, and it's sort of been what it's been since then. Now, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the whole involvement of Stan Lee in the creation of the Marvel Universe. And, you know, over the years, it's been debated, and it's still, to this day, the debate continues in regards to his involvement. And one of the things, you know, that I will continue to see is I feel artists will have the strongest opinion about this. And as much as I love the boys over there, but... The guys over at Cartoonist Kayfabe uh, last month, I want to say, or the month before, had done two days' worth of videos pertaining to the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. And when they did, I believe, the thumbnail for the video and the description of it, it was Fantastic Four number one mm-hmm. by Jack Kirby. And then in parentheses, really discounting the involvement of Stan Lee by saying, uh, either plotted by Stanley or scripted by Stanley. I mean, I would imagine they said scripted because the, the plot was 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 Jack. Yeah. Um I mean likely it was Jack. We we don't we don't really know. Um and I don't want to make a perfect claim there but um you know by the Marvel method the artist was usually the person doing the first pass at the full story. So anyway, I, my guess is I haven't seen that video but they probably said it was scripted. I mean, it depends what you mean by scripted. By yeah. I shouldn't, I, I can sure, but anyway, yeah, sorry, where were you going with that? I, I interrupted. No problem. Well, because um, with the next one, the next day they did the Heroes Reborn Fantastic Four number one by uh, mm. uh, Jim Lee and Brendan Choi. And the thing that really rubbed me the wrong way with that was it said by Jim Lee and Brendan Choi. Well, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't it be by Brendan Choi, parentheses, with art by Jim Lee? Because mm. I love Jim, but Homeboy did not write that script. Just, you know, I'm putting it out there. Like, he sure. might have been like... Well, I, I, I actually don't, you know, I don't know as much about Heroes Reborn as I should. But, Neither do um, I. <laughs> I I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I don't think it was done Marvel Method, but Jim, Jim certainly had... I mean, Jim was the tout, right? Like, Jim's the, the reason why Heroes Reborn... Got, well, whatever. We don't need to relitigate Heroes Reborn. <laughs> um, but... 
I get what you're saying, you know. Uh, well, I think I do. What, what was, where, where were you going with that? Well, basically in the sense of I feel like uh, artists will always be the strongest ones to champion the whole aspect of it was all Jack. It was all Jack. And mm-hmm. when it came to that, you know, that first video, it just, it, again, it just rubbed me the wrong way because as an aspiring comic writer myself, I feel like a lot of the time the writers are just pushed to the side where in regards to creation of characters, I'm the firm believer the writer is just as important as the person who creates the visual aspect of it. And I'm, you know, I'm not one of those contesting, you know, uh, Jack's involvement, especially I feel, you know, a writer is just as important because you're giving the subtle nuances as the vocal voice of the character, you know? And it's like when you have the character of the ever loving blue eyed thing, Ben Grimm, you're going to have a lot of different ticks that, you know, become a Mm. part of the character that Stan created as well. Like, the whole shoehorning in repeatedly of uh, his Aunt Petunia or, sure. the, you know, the line of it's clobbering time. That's something that Jack might not have created, but it is just as important as the physical, visual interpretation of the character. Right. Well, it's not just the physical, visual interpretation, though. They're, what's at stake and the question... Well, for, first of all, you are right that when it comes to the characterization of a lot of these characters, you know, a key component is... Uh, is Stan's dialogue and narration. That's, that's totally true. But if we're talking about Stan's own standard for what counts as creating a character, that's where it gets sticky. Yeah. Because Stan's own standard for it, as expressed in you know, his memoir and a number of other places, was whoever had the initial idea was the creator. And the reason that this is debated is, like, we don't know who the initial idea haver was when it comes to Fantastic right um you know so sure they 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 both uh played big roles in those comics being successful but what what what's being discussed there is you know what do we mean a who had the initial idea and b what do we mean by writer because although the dialogue and narration excuse me was definitely stan um you know the the plot and the the basic outline of the characters for Fantastic Four number one, are crucial. And Jack was the guy, you know, because of the Marvel method, doing the first pass of that. Most likely. Yeah. Fantastic Four one is like a weird case in some ways because there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding it. But, you know, I just would... The main thing I'm trying to say is I would caution against thinking of Jack just as the artist as opposed to uh, a writer-artist. Um, and that's, that's why it gets complicated. But... Um, but I see what you're saying. The, the, you're right. The thing would not be the same without uh, talking about, you know, the anti-street gang and uh, his Aunt Petunia. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, we right. could litigate this all day. <laughs> it's, it's, and we'd be going in circles because we don't really know exactly who played a hand in what. Um, but I, I get what you're saying. It's a valid point. And it's just the, the one thing that always, you know, like you you mentioned in the book as well, and it's the absolute truth is, you know, Ditko on his own, Ditko is going off and just pretty much writing the entire book, doing the plot and everything, and just, you know, sending it yeah. over to Stan and saying, hey, you know, fancy Eventually, this up a little. yeah, that was what they did, yeah. And Jack always said that that was how he did his comics with Stan. This is less, you know, conclusively proven, but Jack's, Jack's claim was always that when he did comics with Stan, he would just call Stan up or talk to Stan in person, most of the time call him up because he was a freelancer, 
and just tell Stan, here's what I'm going to do. And then he would sit down and do it. Now, again, I don't know the degree to which that's true, but it right. is a counter, counter narrative there uh, that would suggest that Ditko was not the only one who was basically coming up with a comic and then handing it off to Stan for the, the addition of uh, dialogue and narration. Um, again, it's, it's sticky, but um, it, Ditko and Kirby may not have been as far off as you might think in terms of the, the process when it, when it came to that. And for myself, one of the most heartbreaking things about your story was not involving Stan himself, but instead his brother Larry Lieber. And you know, mm, Larry, yeah, I've gone to conventions over the years. I I remember he was a guest uh, one year at New York Comic Con and another at a uh, East Coast Comic Con, and I got to see him there. And he was very much the only reason people were really talking to him was because he's Stan's brother. It felt like right. And it's heartbreaking because when you, you know, as you read your book, you paint the picture that it wasn't all, you know, it wasn't all primroses for, uh, you know, Larry. It was a very non-existent relationship between the two. And when you hear this, it's heartbreaking, you know, very, very heartbreaking. And especially his comparison with Charles Foster Kane, like that was like just where it hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that he said that in our, you know, Larry was, was very generous in letting me interview him at length. Um, I'll be forever grateful to him that he allowed me to spend so much time with him. I mean, I have, you know, I can't remember, it's maybe about five hours of interview audio with him. We spoke for a long time, especially for a guy his age. And yeah, it is a sad story. According to Larry, he and Stan didn't really have much of a relationship. They, they did and they didn't. You know, they, he worked, Larry worked for Stan a lot in his life, um, you know, going back to the 40s even. Um, well, not really the 40s, but, you know, 50s. Uh, and, um, you know, all the way up to the Spider-Man newspaper comic, which Larry drew uh, for, you know, a long time, and that only stopped a little bit before Stan died. Um, you know, and Larry and he, despite having this professional relationship and obviously being brothers, being blood, being kin, they were not close, and Stan kind of kept him at arm's length. And, you know, there's this, this very sad anecdote that Larry tells uh, about how in the 70s he was trying to get some more work from Stan and was told uh, that by Stan that there was nothing he could do. He couldn't help him out because he was the publisher now, not, not the editor-in-chief anymore. And Larry talked to an, ed- uh, an editor about and uh, one of the, ed- and the editor he spoke to said, you know, the consensus around here is that Stan only thinks of himself and his family, and you're not included yeah. in the latter. I, I can't remember the exact way it was phrased. But the idea being that Stan's family did not, in his own mind, did not really include Larry. And it's a bit of an extreme thing to say, but it's, it's not far off from the way it seems to have actually played out. Um, they were, they had a, you know, they were nine years apart in age, which didn't help, but, you know, they, look, Stan would, around the end of his life, Stan would come to New York to do conventions where, you know, Larry lived in New York, and Stan had lived in Los Angeles since 1980. Sometimes Stan would come to town to do things in New York, whether it's a convention or whatever, and just not tell Larry, and Larry would find out, you know, uh, that his brother was coming to town and wasn't planning to see him. And, um, you know, he never, according to Larry, Stan never told him he loved him. You know, it was just, it's a, it's a tough, tough relationship 
to to uh, for a lot of us to imagine. I think you know having someone who is your own kin for that long a time. You know, you both live that long, and to just not really have a relationship um, must must have been must have been difficult for him. So yeah, it, it is a bit of a sad story, and but he has a lot of perspective on Stan. I mean, he's the only person who knew Stan who's still around, who knew Stan when Stan was just a boy. You know, there's no one else left like that. And um, so his perspective was pretty, pretty essential. And I, I, like I said, I'm very grateful that he took the time to speak with me. In a lot of ways, it feels like the relationship that Stan and Larry had is also where uh, Larry probably did not have the easy means of being able to get in touch with him. He probably would have had to, you know, contact you know, his assistant or this or that just to be able to get in touch with his own kin. Well, what, what Larry would say is that around the end, for the last few years of their life, um, excuse me, uh, he, uh, when he would hear from Stan, it would be these calls kind of out of the blue where they'd talk for about five minutes, about the five, ten minutes about the Spider-Man newspaper strip. And according to Larry, uh, the end of the phone calls usually were consisted of Stan saying, um, you know, uh, I'll call you, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but I'll call you again uh, when you least expect it, um, which was a slight joke, but also contained a kernel of truth, which was Stan was setting the terms of their relationship and their conversation. Um, it was, you know, Larry getting a call from Stan uh, and getting instructions from Stan about the strip. It was not the two of them calling and having a chummy chat. Um, which made it all the more heartbreaking, kind of alarming, when um, Larry told me about uh, this time near the end of Stan's life when all of these awful um, incidents of abuse were happening. And um, he, called, he called Larry and said, Larry, you're the only one I can trust, which I just can't imagine, you know, to have this person who you have had this strained relationship with for 86 years to suddenly have him say, you're the only one I can trust, is, is I don't know, it gives me chills to think about. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all a long way of saying it was, it was strained and it was, they were not closely in touch, um, either verbally or emotionally. That's probably something that can be speculated on about the statement of you're the only one I can trust because maybe you don't know. There's a realization that this is my brother and maybe, you know, this late in his life he realizes... Who, where he should be, you know, investing his his seat, maybe everything into, know. and uh, yeah. you know, and maybe that's what I mean, that's just. A, I think in general, it's a it's a human thing. If you're one of two, but they were more than just two siblings, I believe, and you realize oh, no, that you know you you gotta um you know you gotta take care of who who's close to you, blood, whatever, and ultimately family is um you know it's got to count for something, especially when you're direct yeah. brothers, even if you're nine years apart, that kind of thing. So maybe there was a yeah. late in life kind of thing, and, and that's just I'm I'm just getting so vague with this now <laughs> that you know after so many years of enmity between people they they come to realize that they really need each other, and to, especially sure. right at the end, yeah. And like yeah. and again, you know, you mentioned in the story, you know, Larry brings it up, Charles Foster Kane. You know, I'd re, uh, recently rewatched the film Citizen Kane, and the parallels are so blatantly there. You know, such a public figure. Everyone, quote unquote, knows him, but we really don't know the true story of him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was the thing, you know, to, to get back to my, my earlier point about why I felt uh, fortunate that this was a story I had the opportunity to tell is, you know, it's this 
there's this huge gap where everybody knows Stan Lee, but nobody knows Stan Lee. Even his fans, like I was saying earlier, his fans would just not know about things that happened to him that were crucial and very public. Um, they would not know about work of his outside of this small scale of time in the 1960s. You know, he, and that's just his fans. Once you get into the casual people who just know him from the cameos, they are maybe very aware of him just as a brand, but have no clue uh, who he was beyond some vague association with Marvel. But he does have that, that brand presence. Everybody knows him from watching these Marvel movies at the very least, if not from other sources even more. But his actual life had just been very poorly documented for the most part. Um, I shouldn't say poorly. There, there had been people who had made real efforts, like Jordan Raphael and Tom Spurgeon, but while Sam was still alive, it was hard to get a lot of that information. And, um, you know, Sam was a very private guy. And, it, 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 you know, after someone passes, people have a different perspective and are maybe more willing to speak honestly. And, um, you know, I, I think that that was, that was something that happened. And, like I say, there's just this gap where everybody knows Stan Lee, but nobody knew any of the details. Um, or I shouldn't say any. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But there was a lot people didn't know. With this book that's 10 chapters, it uh, looks like about 340 pages, almost 400 with when you include the index. How much more material do you think could have been added to this, given the time and whatever well, parameters? Uh, I, I don't know. You could add, I mean, the, the big thing that's not there is deep analysis of the comics themselves, um, which was a deliberate choice on my part because I felt that that's, that's been done a lot. There's been a lot written about the comics that Stan was credited on, at least the ones in the 1960s, um, and to a certain extent, ones before that. But, um, you know, I, I felt like, A, I only had about a calendar year to write this book, so I had to do triage, but I also just felt that um, you can go f- too far down the road of uh, writing too much about these these comics because, like we were saying, their authorship is kind of ambiguous. So if you're trying to write a biography, now if you're trying to do literary analysis of the comics, that's one thing. If you're trying to do a biography of somebody whose credit is there, it's really easy to slip up and go, well, this happens in this story, so that must have been Stan writing that. Well, again, like we said, the, the artists were pretty much the first, the primary writers, uh, especially in, in certain cases, and that meant everything's kind of muddied, and you don't necessarily know what to find autobiographically and what is in those comics. Um, so I certainly could have written a lot more about the, those texts themselves, and part of me wishes I had, but I, I, I think not getting too deep in the weeds there makes it more accessible for a, a lay reader and keeps us from getting into that confused zone of like, well, was this a Stan story or was this a Jack story or, or whoever the other person was. But and then there's, there's a lot more, I mean, there's a lot more material um, from all stages of Stan's life that I have, especially the later periods when you have a lot more people who are still around you know, I could have written a lot more about Stanley Media. I could have written a lot more about Power Entertainment. Um, you know, I'm just realizing as I'm saying this, there, there really is a lot on the cutting room floor. And who knows, maybe some of that will see the light of day in another form in the future. But I did get more, a lot more than I needed. And I mean, I did more than 150 interviews for this book. Mm-hmm. 
and you know went to the Stanley Archives in Wyoming. Uh, why they're in Wyoming is, is a weird story, but um, I you know I poured through that stuff and um, used what I found, and there's a lot more that I didn't use. Um, so I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And in some uh, way, shape, or form, and also maybe on the side, I see that in the opening in your overture, as you call it there is something about you possibly getting or asked to be involved in some kind of movie project. You want to elaborate a little on that? Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I'd rather not elaborate on that. But, you know, I was, I was asked about um, participating in a business venture. Uh, it didn't go very far, but, um, you know, it was, it was slightly odd to be asked, given that I was a journalist working on the story. Um, but, yeah, I'd rather not get into too much detail about that. Now, one of the things about this book that's been the, a lot of uh, discussion, discourse on the Internet pertaining to it, including recently from, uh, as of today, uh, on the TheHollywoodReporter.com, uh, Roy Thomas, a former Marvel yeah. editor and writer, he, you know, the portrayal of Stan in the book. And personally, again, as someone who's currently going through his second time of this, I personally feel that it is a fair and balanced dissection of who Stan was because thank you you know you can't have all again all positivity there has to be a reflection on you know what caused the fall and again there is a rise and fall of Stan Lee especially in the later years and yeah. i feel like it's a lot of a lot of what Stan had done was brought on himself you know for being too trusting by being someone who didn't see you know the quote-unquote good and bad in people so easily, you know, and I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm hesitant about. He certainly was uh, a questionable judge of character. All I would caution you is on is you don't want a victim blame. I mean, the guy when he was getting abused at the end of his life, maybe he should have associated with different people, but no, no, 95 year old deserves the kind of abuse that he was going through. Right. Um, so. I, I get what you're saying. I just, you know, I, I, I'm always a little cautious about reading it in, into it that, like, what happened at the end of his life was, was his fault. Um, but I, I get where you're coming from, and I, and I get where Roy is coming from. Roy Thomas, you know, writing the piece for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, everybody has a different perspective on Stan based on um, their personal and emotional involvement, personal, professional, and emotional involvement with him. And Roy and Stan had a, a very powerful relationship, um, and I I get it. Um, I, the Stan I'm writing about is not necessarily the Stan he knew, but that doesn't mean it wasn't Stan. You know, um, people are people are. It sounds banal to say it, but people are different people to different people. Um, and the the challenge of writing a biography is to try to assemble as many perspectives as you can and try to figure out what they add up to. But, you know, it can be very stark for people. I mean, for me, I remember, as I talk about in the book, hearing these uh, recordings that were taken quasi-surreptitiously of, of Stan in his final years at home, talking to people in his inner circle. And, you know, he sounds completely unlike the Stan that you or I know. I mean, he's He's just yelling obscenities, and he's screaming at his daughter, and he's saying racist and homophobic comments. And you hear that, and you realize, like, well, A, he was an old guy, so who knows how much of that was just decline. But B, it just reminds you that there was, 
there were there were stands plural that you know if you had one relationship with Stan would never see because he you know it, it's what Larry says in the overture he was who was he what was he it depends on who you were talking to at what time right. you know so right. I, I don't fault Roy for uh, offering up a different perspective on Stan I'm I'm glad he did I I think that more perspectives are important in understanding a person but I, I stand by the work I did and, and think I, I had an, an accurate portrayal of, uh, at least to the best of my ability. On the topic of Roy, it does feel like, you know, we have it established, you know, with the relationship between Larry and Stan. I feel like Roy was the son that Stan had always wanted or the family member that Stan had always wanted because they were always so close and inseparable with each they other. Were, they weren't always close. They had they had tensions. I mean, you know, you could say that maybe that makes him more of a sunlight character, but I, again, I'm always cautious about sort of falling into um, a simplistic narrative about people's relationships. And Stan, Roy certainly learned a lot from Stan. Um, and they were close in some ways, but you know, you see in the story um, in in my book, there were a number of instances where Stan and Roy were really at cross purposes, and and Roy, you know, there's this conception among some people that Roy is this, you know, uh, slavish uh, praiser, excuse me, of Stan, um, and you know, only says nice things about Stan. That's not true. You know, he would he would. In the interviews with me, he would be open about things that he thought Stan did wrong or the conflicts they had had. Um, but at the end of the day, Roy still, uh, you know, really has a deep affection and respect for Stan, and that is the perspective he's coming from. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily call him, you know, a second son, or the only son, I guess, if, if we were accepting that, because Stan didn't have any, any sons uh, biologically. You know, we can say that, but I, I prefer to think of it as, you know, two professionals who had uh, a, a, a relationship where one had a little bit more power and authority um, and the other was, was you know, I, I, I just feel a little uncomfortable about saying he was a second son. That's sort of, you know, a little overly familiar, I think. But right. they, they had, a, they had a, a close relationship in a lot of ways, and in other ways they, they were pretty... They, they didn't know each other that well, is my understanding. And, you know, going back over, though, to the uh, portrayal of Stan in the book, I feel like the best way to describe this is quoting the late Adam West talking about Batman. Hmm. And it, it's such a strange way, but hear me out on this. Yeah, go on. You know, Adam would always describe his Batman as the bright knight. You can't have the dark night without the bright night. There has to be like a sense of duality to it, you know? Yeah. And I feel like in your portrayal of Stan, there are going to be the uncomfortable parts. There's going to be the parts where you look at the man and you're just like, wow, you really did that, Stan? But then there's also the moments where you're like, yeah, you know, that's a given. You know, the things you like about the person. Because, again, that's the sense of duality. We always There are always going to be yeah. two sides. And also, again... I'll go with an even more bizarre one. Billy Joel's The Stranger. We all, you know, have a face that we hide away forever. Eddie, sure. would you like to finish the rest of the song? No, very good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm let you, you, good one there. Very good. But it is that. You know, it's we all have a different face that we show to the public in varying degrees. Yeah. And it was, that was Stan. Absolutely. I mean, that's true of anybody, like you're saying. You know, uh, the old line where, like, you know, 
guy says to another guy, I'm leading a double life, and the other guy says, only two? You know, I mean, that's that's sort of how it was, the stand. There were a lot of different stands. There's the Even in public, there were different stands, because the character of Stan Lee that we all sort of came to accept, you know, mustache, shades, sweater, um, toupee, you know, that look that was so true of, of his, his public image for, for decades, that didn't even exist in the 60s. You know, he, he developed the public persona of Stan Lee over many decades. And so even there, you have multiple stands. And he would say things earlier in his career that he would never see later, say later in his career. In, early, in the 60s, you have interviews where he'll just say, yeah, Jack sometimes writes the story. You know, sometimes he'll just tell me what we're going to do, and then he does it. He's a, sometimes he's a better writer than I am. He would never say that later in his life. And, you know, it's just further documentation of that thing Larry said, where it just depends on who you were talking to at what time. Um, it probably depended on, you know, what, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, you're right, that there, there is not just a duality, but a multiplicity of identities that we all have. And the other thing with, you know, Stan, you mentioned, by the way, in the book that Stan had at one point attempted to do like a talk show in like the 1960s. Yeah, and... in, 19, in 1968, he did a um, pilot for a talk show, which interesting was not, interestingly, was not about um, uh, comics or the arts at all. It was a political talk show. Um, and the idea, it appears, from the, the surviving pilot was that it would be a talk show where he would moderate discussions with young people. And, you know, the argument he was making was, I've gotten to know young people really well from making these comics. And yet you watch that pilot and it's fascinating because he doesn't seem to get the young people and he's chastising them. He keeps saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Not, not rudely, but he keeps sort of dismissing their arguments as naivete um, among, you know, people who haven't gotten serious about the world yet. Um, and yeah, that was a that was a version of himself that he thought might be able to succeed in in the marketplace, and it didn't. But he gave it a shot, and there were a million examples of that. You know, he tried to tar- start a textbook company in the '40s. He tried to be the writer of newspaper comic strips, which was a very different world and a lot more prestigious in the '50s. Um, you know, he tried to write in advertising. He, you know, there's this story Jack Kirby says uh, used to say about. Um, a time when Stan said he was going to run for governor. I mean, you know, there were a lot of dreams he had of things that were outside of superhero comics. Um, and, you know, superhero comics was really the only thing he ever truly succeeded at. I mean, the closest other thing would be doing cameos in the movies based on superhero comics. But that's just sort of an extension of, of the first thing. And, you know, by the way, one other thing that I really enjoyed about your book is the narrative that you had with you know, the little things that Stan would do to Jack that caused strike one, strike two, and then when you get to the, you know, the building point, what, you know, leads to uh, Jack leaving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a slow accumulation. I mean, people people often don't know that, at least according to uh, Jack Simon, uh, Joe Simon, Jack's partner in the 40s and 50s, and according to Jack's uh, uh, assistant and biographer, Mark Evanier, um, you know, Jack blamed Stan for Jack getting fired from Marvel, or rather not Marvel, from, from Timely Comics, that's what it was called back then, uh, in the 40s. So, you know, you have the, and, and Jack lives until 1994, 
and um, you know, really had his problems with Dan that that whole that whole stretch. I mean, you think about that. That's that's a long freaking time to hold a grudge, but it, it was it was a difficult relationship, and there were bumps along the way, but also great work came out of it. And weirdly, they were very friendly to each other in public for the most part, um, and could have very cordial interactions even near the end of their lives, or the end of Jack's life, when, you know, Jack had said a lot of very incendiary things about Stan, and Stan had been very condescending towards Jack, and yet they still were able to have some degree of, of politeness and, and, you know, even, you know, camaraderie in some degree. Uh, you know, they'd run into each other at conventions and be nice to each other, but, but yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an accumulation over many decades of a lot of perceived slights uh, or, you know, slights that, that Jack perceived and, you know, then Stan's responses to them. But yeah, yeah, it happened gradually. And I feel like a really good companion piece for your book would be uh, Tom Scholey's Jack Kirby, The King of Comics uh, graphic novel that had come out last year. Yeah, and... my same, same publisher, in fact. We were both hanging around oh. house. Uh, yeah, it came out last year. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's another book that tries to tell a set of stories that are, you know, not the official narrative that has been out there. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I would say that it's, it is something of a, uh, uh, maybe a companion piece, something like that. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, niceties that they would have between each other over the years, especially, you know, towards the end of Jack's life. And there's, you know, a story in Tom's book pertaining to, like, the, I think it was the quote-unquote Marvel 25th anniversary, you know, the 25th anniversary of the quote-unquote Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, you know, it was uh, held on behest of uh, Jim Shooter. Jack Kirby's there with his wife, Roz, and they, you know, talk to each other, Jack and Stan. And yeah. in the middle of everything, you know, Stan says, you know, I'd love to work with you again. And Roz comes in and says, no, you're not going to do that. Yeah, you bite, know? bite your tongue. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, and, you know, that may well have been true. I mean, it's th that's certainly one story, and it, it fits with at least the larger sense of the fact that they could be polite to one another. And I, I don't know whether that particular incident occurred, but it's, it's a story that's not, it's not completely implausible. But, you know, according to Evan Neer, the, the assistant biographer, Jack never really forgave Stan. I mean, there was, Stan used to tell the story that they ran into each other shortly before Jack's death. And Jack said uh, something to the, to the effect of, you know, Stan, you have nothing to reproach yourself about. And Evanier maintains that that's impossible. I mean, Jack would just never have said, you have nothing to reproach yourself about, because Jack had a lot that he thought Stan had to reproach himself about. So, yeah, but they, but they were able to, to, you know, shake hands and take pictures every once in a while. So it's, you know, relationships are, are complicated. And it's always, you know, one of the other things during our interview with uh, Tom Scholey, I brought up about the the infamous uh, radio interview where Jack oh, Kirby. Oh yeah, WBAI. Yeah, yes. Who oh, boy is that? Uh, that is yeah, an interesting awkward. thing. Yeah, that was that was one. I didn't include that in the book mainly because it had been done so masterfully by Sean Howe in the in Marvel Comics: The Untold Story. But it is a it is a wild story for for people. You know, people should seek that out. But. Um, but it was, it was, you know, I didn't have to include it because it was indicative of all of their interactions yeah. in those last, you know, then that last decade or so, um, last couple of decades. 
uh, really, yeah, last decade and a half-ish of, of Jack's life. And like the, um, the where thing... they could be cordial, but there was always that underlying tension, and it would bubble over. It, that interview like is one of the most awkward train wrecks to you know listen to too because it's uh like it would be like the equivalent of like somebody calling in on this interview right now and you're then pushed to the side in favor of this other person who the interviewers are not the one doing that it's the other person calling in making themselves the subject matter and it's right, it rubs right. me the wrong way every time I you know I've heard it a number yeah, of times the weird the weird one I I agree so. I think what it comes down to is Abraham. You, you did all these interviews. You got all the information you possibly could, and put out this true believer rise and fall of Stanley book. And now it's up to the general public, consuming public, who you know either you know everybody's different again. Those who are really really big uh, Stan fans, who others who want to know what else might have been going on, and it's it's again matter of perspective. Uh, we appreciate being able to get a hold of it ourselves and and talk about it to some length and let everybody know it's out there if you want to seek it out. If not, have a nice day. You know that's that's fine too. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk about it and to think about it. And once again, from my personal perspective of you know listening to the audiobook and also going through you know reading it at the same time, it's like having someone read it to you while you're holding the book. <laughs> but um, yeah. I cannot recommend the book enough. Like it Thank is a you. phenomenal story and it it you know it it paints a story that needs to be told in a lot of ways the brutal honest truth of someone who is a conflicting figure. You know, you have to mm-hmm. have that. You have to have that sense of yeah, there was all this really neat stuff, but there is still the negative side that you know has to be discussed. It has to be brought to the light cuz or at least the human side. I mean, yes. you know, the lesson is there are no superheroes. That doesn't mean people are necessarily supervillains, but looking for that extremity of, of virtue and, and holding somebody up on a pedestal is a dangerous thing to do. Yes, absolutely. Now, Abraham, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Sure, yeah. I'm, I spent, spend way too much time on Twitter. Sorry, I have a little bit of a case of hiccups today. Um, I uh, spend way too much time on Twitter, so you can find me there. It's at Abraham Joseph. Or you can find me on my website where I have everything else linked, including book, articles, everything. Um, that's abrahamreisman.com. I before E. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Abraham Reisman. And I'm Eddie Wilson. With all due respect, Excelsior. <laughs>